A politically incorrect guide to Islam. This is Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zuckerin. Today, a special guest in for Pat Zuckerin, Kirby Anderson, as he discusses the differences between Islam and Christianity. And while you're listening, check out the great resources, including this program at evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Kirby Anderson. Well, tonight we're going to focus on the subject of Islam, what I call the politically incorrect guide to uh, Islam and global terrorism. Why did I title that? Well, in large part because I think almost all of us, when we talk about Islam, go back to a very key date, and that is September 11th, 2001. Imagine almost all of you know where you were on that date. And really, we've learned a lot about Islam in the last five years. But what is so interesting is, is I think that a lot of people are expressing to me, and that's why I put this presentation together, expressing to me a real concern that maybe political correctness has clouded are thinking about Islam. For example, have you ever heard anybody say, well, Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Maybe you've heard, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. There's really no distinction between Jesus Christ and Muhammad. These are the kinds of things that we hear political leaders say. If you were to travel with us to college campuses and to take, um, go into a religion class, you hear those said. And so what I want to try to do tonight is take on just a couple of those politically correct statements and uh, really evaluate them in a little more detail. Now, to understand exactly the role of Islam in the 21st century, I think you almost need to go back to a book that was written in the early 1990s by Samuel Huntington. He's a professor at Harvard University, and he wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations. And he was predicting, even back then, almost now getting close to 20 years ago, what was going to be taking place. And that is, he was predicting that there would be, he believed in the 21st century, a clash between three major civilizations. The first would be what you might want to call Western universalism. The West and all that we take for granted, constitutional law, uh, one man, one vote, equal rights, equal protection, those kinds of things. The second would be Chinese assertion. So I don't want to forget the fact that we've got a billion Chinese. The third, and that is what he called Muslim militancy. Now, by that, he didn't mean that all Muslims are militant. He didn't mean that all Muslim countries were militant. But he did predict that there would be a major clash between the West and Islam. Is that what we found in the 21st century? We certainly have. Now, we can add to it. He was only talking about it politically. But we can add to it also in terms of there has been a clash between Christianity and Islam. You know, it's much easier to plant a missionary in uh, Germany or in Hungary or uh, even in Africa, some parts of Africa. But it's much more difficult to plant a missionary in the Muslim countries. And it used to be that the closed countries were the communist countries. But today, many of the closed countries are the Muslim countries. And so whether you're looking at this politically, whether you're looking at it in terms of missions, that is certainly the case. And so what I want to try to do is kind of look at about 10 different uh, politically correct statements tonight and ask whether or not they're true and see if I could generate a little bit of discussion. And the first one is this. Muhammad is just like every other religious founder. If you go into religion class, oftentimes Muhammad is being presented like any other religious leader. And yet if you think about that, there are some very good reasons why you could uh, set that idea aside. One individual is a man by the name of Bernard Lewis. He is considered one of the leading experts in this country on Islam, emeritus professor from Princeton University. And a while back he said that Muhammad, it will be recalled, was not only a prophet and a teacher like the founders of other religions, he was also the head of a polity and of a community, a ruler and a soldier. So he had a very different kind of life than most others. And so when you talk about the life of Muhammad, it's pretty well known. He was born into a fairly powerful tribe in A.D. 570. 
Before he was born, his father died. After he was born, his mother died. For a while, he was raised by his grandfather and eventually was raised by his uncle. In AD 610, when he was 40 years old, he began to go into these kind of states, whether it was an epileptic fit or whatever, it's kind of hard to figure out. But nevertheless, he came to believe that he was receiving revelation from the angel Gabriel. And so they be he began to write down these recitations. The Quran means recitations. And as he began to do that, he began to preach this idea of strict monotheism in a culture that believed in polytheism. And so he found himself, in many cases, rejected for his teaching. And as a result, he began to get very angry. His rage began to surface, for example, against his uncle, and he rejected his message, and Muhammad singled him out for judgment in hell. Wouldn't exactly want to go to that family dinner, would you? But nevertheless, that shows you a little bit of what was taking place. Now he and some of his followers were being threatened. So as a result, he actually fled from Mecca to Medina, an oasis in the north, in A.D. 622. You ask any Muslim in the world, when did Islam start? They will all say A.D. 622. As a matter of fact, if you want to understand their calendar, take our year, 2007, subtract 622, and you will have their calendar, which is called A.H., after Hijra, which is the actual flight from Mecca to Medina. Now that he's in Medina, he is involved in raiding caravans. He's involved in all sorts of battles. One of the most significant is the Battle of Bader, in which he was able to defeat an army that came against him, even though he was significantly outnumbered. And that led to all sorts of statements uh, in the Muslim world about the fact that they could not be defeated, and it began to expand rather dramatically. He then took 10,000 men back to Mecca and took the city almost without a fight, simply because they finally recognized he was the big uh, man on the block, and so they uh, capitulated to him him. And so he was really then at the very pinnacle of his power, went back to Medina, and something rather unexpected took place. He died in 632. But rather than that being the end of Islam, as we'll see in just a minute, it was the beginning of a phenomenal expansion of Islam into those territories. But when we look at Muhammad, we see that he is not like a typical religious leader. Let's just do a comparison between, say, Muhammad and Jesus. And that is, Muslims believe that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. Muslims believe that Moses was a prophet, Jesus was a prophet, but that Muhammad was the final, kind of the seal of the prophets. But at the same time, even though he is venerated, and if you were to do anything that would ridicule Muhammad, think of the cartoons about Muhammad more recently here, then there would be quite a reaction. But nevertheless, the Quran teaches that he was a man, just like us. Also, there's a place where Allah told Muhammad that he must repent of his sins. And so, obviously, he was an individual who was sinful and human. By comparison, the Bible is very different because Jesus claimed to be God in a number of different ways, made very direct claims as well as indirect claims. And moreover, the Bible teaches that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And so we see some very dramatic differences between, say, Muhammad and Jesus. What about the second statement? You've certainly heard this before. Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Ever heard that before? Of course you have. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. It's understandable that people might come to at least a little of that, because if you uh, want to think about Christianity and Islam, they both are religions of the book. They both talk about monotheism, but really the foundational doctrine of Islam is this idea of Unitarian monotheism. And it teaches that Allah is one, and anyone who this idea is guilty of idolatry called shirk. And so as a result, they believe that Christians are engaged in a type of idolatry because Christianity teaches that there indeed is one God, but in three persons, which we, of course, call the Trinity. And so if you want to understand that, there are some very differences in terms of who God is. But in terms of the character of God, we see some differences as well. Allah in the Islamic faith is distant 
He is removed from mankind. He deals with the world through his prophets, Muhammad, through his word, the Quran, through maybe emissaries like angels. But he is not knowable. He is not personable. You cannot have a personal relationship with the God of Islam. By contrast, Christianity teaches that Jesus came into the world that we might know God. And perhaps the most famous verse in the New Testament, uh, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so whereas Islam has this God that is distant, unknowable, capricious, unpredictable, Christianity has a very different view of God, and that is a view that we can know God personally, and that Jesus was the second part of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, and came that we might have a personal relationship. If you want to look at the differences here, you can see them rather dramatically between the God of Islam and the God of Christianity. The difference between Unitarian monotheism and Trinitarian monotheism. In Allah, the idea is that he is kind of the master, you're the slave. Whereas in Christianity, you have kind of a father-son, father-daughter relationship. We can call God what? Abba, Father, right? Allah determines all. Here, the view in Christianity is God is sovereign, but we have free will. Allah is author of both good and evil. Yahweh, always good. Uh, about as different as one could possibly have imagined. Now, when we talk about this idea of God's character, it also brings us back to this issue of God's love. Because it was intriguing that one seminary actually did a survey of 600 individuals who grew up as Muslims and then converted to Christianity. And so they asked them, what was it that influenced you in becoming a Christian and leaving Islam? And they found that one of the factors was the emphasis upon the love of God and intimacy that believers can have with their Heavenly Father. Now, Pat's going to talk about how we can witness to our Muslim friends, but one of the things that you can see as an obvious implication point is this, and that is when you witness to a Muslim, make sure that you share the love of God. When you talk to a Muslim, oftentimes they find themselves very intrigued by the fact that you can have a personal relationship with God. Their head sort of says, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It almost sounds slightly heretical, but their heart is oftentimes really drawn to this idea of the love of God. And so Pat will say more about uh, how we witness to Muslims in just a minute, because you can see that just the view of God itself, the Christian view of God, is, I think, a very effective witnessing tool when you talk to your Muslim friends. Well, let's take a third one. Ever heard this one before? Islam is a religion of peace. What about that for just a minute? I think it's important, first of all, to look at that historically. And as I pointed out, when Muhammad died in A.D. 632, instead of that being the end of Islam, you had this vast expansion that took place. And the Muslim armies began to move to the east from the Arab Peninsula into Persia and began to occupy, which today, countries which we would call Syria and uh, Iraq and Iran and even some of the Stan countries. And even more significantly, the armies began to move to the west through northern Africa into Spain. And if it were not for the defeat of the Muslim army at the hands of Charles Martel, known as the Hammer, in AD 732, they might have taken over most of Europe. And so you can see that there was a remarkable expansion of Islam even at its very beginning because these individuals began to sweep into Africa and even into Europe and occupied those particular areas of geography for a long period of time. But not only was there one that took place then, but later on there was also another sweep through the Ottoman Empire into Europe, now coming in from the eastern part. And the Muslim armies in that case were defeated at the gates of Vienna on September 11, 1683. You notice something about that date? You better. 
uh, because Osama bin Laden, in one of his fatwas, said that the reason they picked September 11th was to avenge the defeat of the Muslim armies on September 11th. But look at the year, 1683. We in the West have a pretty short memory. I mean, they're going back centuries to talk about the uh, defeat of an army. And so when we talk about this, a lot of the key is not only to look at it historically, because I think you'd have to say that historically Islam expanded at the edge of the sword, but today, what does the word jihad mean? And how you interpret that particular word, I think, will determine whether or not you're a peace-loving person that you would love to have as a neighbor, or whether you are an individual that you would be fearful of. And the word jihad really can be easily found by looking at just one of the passages in the Quran. There are surahs or chapters in the Quran, and Surah 973 says, Strive hard against the unbelievers and the hypocrites, be firm against them, or abode is hell, and evil refuge indeed. And that phrase that we translate, strive hard, actually is one word. It's jahidi, and it's really the verbal form of jihad. Now, the traditional interpretation of that has been that that jihad and that striving was to be on the battlefield. I'll be the first to admit that sometimes jihad is used in other ways. In Iran right now, you have the president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and he actually has a department of agricultural jihad. Well, he doesn't mean they're going to fight farmers. It just means that that's the idea of a struggle or a battle. But most of the time, jihad usually means a battle that would take place on a battlefield or a striving that takes place. Now, if you were to go to one of the mosques, oftentimes you'll hear them also say, well, yes, but, you know, there are lots of verses in the Quran that talk about peace. And I will agree. But you have to know a little bit about Muslim interpretation to make sense of that. And that is the Quran actually has two sections. You have the Meccan surahs. Those were written when Muhammad was in Mecca and he was a prophet. And then you have the Median surahs, which were written when he was a soldier and a leader of an army. And so the theology is a little bit different because when he's a prophet, he spends a lot of time talking about peace, talks a lot about tolerance. But in Medina, his positions are hardened and really filled with matters of law and ritual and most importantly, exhortations to jihad. With that as background, now you have to know one more thing. And that is, there are verses in the Quran that talk about peace and tolerance, but they date from the earlier period, the Meccan period. Those which deal with jihad are later, and there is a principle in Islamic interpretation that is known as the doctrine of abrogation. And that means that Allah, or God, can change his mind. So later interpretations invalidate or change previous interpretations. With me on that? Well, once you understand that, thus the verses of the swords abrogate or change or modify the earlier ones which were verses about peace. And once you understand that, you can begin to understand why it has been very difficult for so-called moderate Muslims to speak out, because even if they do, the leaders of some of these radical groups can say, no, the Quran specifically calls us to be engaged in a jihad. So while it is true there are many passages that talk about peace, the reality is those which talk about war, those which talk about jihad, are the later revelations. Let's take the fourth one, because oftentimes if we talk about that, as soon as somebody says, okay, well, there's jihad in the Quran, but you know, your Bible has passages about war. What about that? Aren't both the Quran and the Bible violent books? Well, let's take that on for just a minute. And I would suggest that if you ever wanted to read maybe just one chapter out of the Quran, I would encourage you to read Surah 9. You just heard me quote from it a minute ago, the ninth chapter. Why? Because it was one of the last written. And also, you can run into jihad about four or five times just in the first 35 verses. So you can kind of read it for yourself, and you don't have to accept what I say. You can read it and see what it says. But I'll help you along on this process. 
Probably one of the most famous verses is Surah 9.5, which says, Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie and wait for them in every stratagem. So you can see that here is this idea of fighting and slaying the infidels. You can go on to Surah 9.29 and read, Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his prophet, nor acknowledge the religion of the truth, even if they are people of the book, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now, a lot of words there, but first of all, it talks about this idea of the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians, okay? And it says that you... Um, I actually might allow them to exist, but they have to feel themselves subdued, so they kind of have second-class citizenship, and they pay what is kind of known as the tax, the jizya, in order to exist. But you can see there are lots of passages here which are making very direct claims to go out and fight against the infidels. Okay, let's contrast that with the Bible. key passage you might look at is 1 Samuel 15, and here, God, through Samuel, says to Saul to go out and to kill the Amalekites. Okay, who are the Amalekites? Well, if you remember from Exodus, they were the group that were kind of the first terrorist organization. They went up and fought against the Jews, and they attacked them uh, from behind uh, various kinds of guerrilla warfare. And so eventually there's a battle between the, the uh, children of Israel and the Amalekites. You might remember because Moses has his hand up. Remember this part where Moses, when his hand is raised, uh, the Israelites are prevailing, but eventually he gets tired of holding his hand. And when it goes down, then the Amalekites begin to prevail. And so there comes a point in time where... They're not able to deal with all of that, and now time has come to go and to take out the Amalekites. But interestingly enough, the next verse says, be careful, allow the Kenites, who were near the Amalekites, to go free. They've been kind to you. So again, there was a direct emphasis upon taking out just the Amalekites and preventing any collateral damage. Now, here's the key difference, because in the Old Testament, there's a direct and specific command to fight against a particular group of people. Who is that? The Amalekites. But it's a direct and specific command in the Old Testament theocracy about a specific group of individuals. That's very different, though, than the passages in the Quran, which apply to all unbelievers at all times. You don't have any Christian fundamentalists out there saying, we need to go out and kill whatever, you know, based upon biblical ideas. But you do have lots of Muslim leaders using the Quran to justify jihad in their military actions. Now, if you do a contrast between the Quran and the New Testament, and we're New Testament believers, right? You see some really striking differences. Because here, if you think about that, the New Testament calls upon believers to love their enemies, calls upon believers to turn the other cheek. And so, if anything, I would suggest to you that a literal interpretation of the New Testament would actually call for Christians to be more peace-loving. And here's the difference. The more literal your interpretation of the Quran, the more likely you are to believe that jihad is a military action against unbelievers. The more literal your interpretation of the New Testament, the more likely you are to be peace-loving. This one I've heard before in religion classes, PC statement number five, the Quran and the Bible are basically the same. I cannot tell you the number of times I hear that. Matter of fact, the other day I had this one professor who said, you know, I think all the religions are basically the same. And I said, you know, I guess I could agree. All religions are basically the same, except they only disagree on heaven, hell, God, salvation, a few other minor points. But other than that, they're exactly identical. But nevertheless, we hear this idea that the Quran and the Bible are the same. Well, I can understand a little bit that because both Islam and Christianity are religions of the book. Both claim to be divine revelation, and both religions claim that the book of their revelation has been accurately preserved through the centuries. So there is a little similarity, but it's not the similarities that are the issue. It's the remarkable differences. The first is, is the Quran teaches that Christians worship three gods. God the Father, God the Mother Mary, 
and God the Son, Jesus. This comes from the fact that uh, Muhammad really had come in contact with kind of a bizarre form of Christianity and really thought that Christians were polytheists. They believed in at least three different gods. But the Bible actually teaches that there is one God in three persons, the Trinity. In many cases, they have a very mixed-up view, a very confused view of what Christianity really teaches. Let's take another one. The Quran says that Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. Matter of fact, they say he was going to be sacrificed where the Kaaba is, uh, in Mecca. And there's no evidence that Abraham ever made it down there. But the Bible very clearly teaches that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And one more. Uh, the Quran teaches that Jesus was not crucified. The reason for that is a belief that Jesus was a, a revered prophet and God would not allow that to happen. So the teaching is, is that there must have been an imposter that was crucified on the cross that he escaped to Syria, he died, eventually he's going to come back again, he's going to destroy all crosses, all pigs, uh, eventually marry and die and be buried next to Muhammad. Kind of a different view than the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. So if you want to look at it, you can see that there are very significant differences between Islam and Christianity. The argument that they're basically the same, you can see in the chart, is not the case. Islam teaches that God is an absolute one, whereas Christianity teaches that God is in three persons. Islam teaches that Jesus was a major prophet, but not God. Christianity teaches that Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. Islam teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross or rise. Christianity teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. Islam teaches that the Bible is corrupted. That's the only way they can get around explaining the differences between the Bible and the Quran. Christianity teaches the Bible is the word of God. Islam teaches humans are good by nature, but maybe forgetful. Whereas Christianity teaches human beings are sinful by nature. Islam is a salvation by works religion. Christianity is salvation by grace. They couldn't be more different in terms of their actual views. You've heard people say, we're fighting a war on terror. It's amazing the number of columns I've seen in the last couple of months, people saying, you know, we need to really define who our enemy is. Because if you think about it, we're fighting a war without a name. Charles Kruttrammer says, you know, when we say we're fighting a war on terror, terror is a tactic. It'd be like saying during World War II, we're fighting a war on kamikazes. You know, that's not our enemy. That was the tactic that was used. And so we certainly are not engaged just in a war on terror. We're not even really engaged in a war against al-Qaeda, although that is certainly one of the enemies. But it is much broader than that. And so many are saying, you know, it's really difficult to win a war when you can't even name the enemy that you're fighting in the first place. If you think about it, this is why you've had former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich suggest that maybe we should call this World War III. Because in some respects, it's a world war. Because we have current conflicts involving Islam in Afghanistan, in Chechnya, in Iran, in Iraq, in Indonesia, in the Philippines. We've had attacks against the UK, against Spain, against France, and of course against the United States and many, many more. This is a global conflict and as a matter of fact, a lot of the so-called war on terror won't even involve the military. And a good example of that is, you might remember in the UK just a few months ago, they were able to break up some terrorist cells that were going to blow up a number of airlines. And that was actually done through Scotland Yard and through Interpol and various groups just tracing money transfers. So some of the battles won't even be necessarily military battles, but it is one of the great challenges we face in the 21st century. More than that, I think it's also helpful to understand that this battle isn't just over there. It could very easily come to us here. We have about 1,400 mosques here in the United States, and about 90% of them have been built in the last 20 years with funds from Wahhabi Sunnis in Saudi Arabia. Now, who are Wahhabis? Wahhabis tend to be kind of a strict, almost fundamentalist, strict literalist uh, interpretation of the Quran. 
Wahab was an individual in the 18th century who applied that, and all of the hijackers on 9-11 were Wahhabi Sunnis. And many of those hijackers actually receive support from seven different mosques in our own country today. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. And right now, there's a free offer from Evidence and Answers. Pat's teaching on the Da Vinci Code deception. The Da Vinci Code book and movie will continue to impact the world for some time. And you can expect sequels and spinoffs to continue to influence people to doubt the claims of Jesus Christ. So get Pat's teaching on this important subject for free. It's yours for the asking. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Contact Pat. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Don't forget about the free offer we have, Pat's teaching in front of a live audience on the Da Vinci Code deception. Go there now. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.